welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the Gospel of John. There are four stories of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We'll be in John chapter 10, if you can. I want to invite you to stand as we read the word, and then we will jump right in. Starting in verse 7, Jesus says this, Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Pray with me. God, as we gather this morning in this place and as we turn our attention to the scriptures, I pray that uh, they would be what they say they are, alive and active, uh, sharp enough to cut through all of the, uh, the clutter. Um, God, in a world that we live in, there is a lot of clutter and a lot of things we don't understand. And um, So we entrust ourselves to you for the next few moments to the degree that we can and ask that you would speak, that you would move, that you would shape us and uh, form us into the people that you always dreamt us to be uh, as we follow this Jesus, I pray. Amen, amen, and amen. You may have a seat. Jesus is in a conversation, and the conversation is with his disciples. His disciples are a group of people who follow him. And according to Jesus and John, who wrote this gospel, um, it's a conversation about his mission, like what he came to do. So he's talking to them about what what he's up to, and Uh, he's making the case that there are really two kind of forces at work here. There is the force or the spirit or the energy that animates Jesus and his work. And then there's another force that opposes that work. And uh, his claim, according to the gospel, according to John, his claim is that he has come to bring life and life to the full. Some of your translations might say abundant life. Laura and I have a joke around the house, uh, when things sort of go to hell in a handbasket, we say to ourselves, is this the abundant life? Jesus makes a claim that his, what he's come, what he's come to do is offer life and life to the full. One translation says, I came so that they can have real and eternal life, more and better life than they've ever dreamed of. So according to John in his gospel, the way of Jesus is the best possible way of living. Jesus claims that what he's come to do is to show us And offer us this life, the best possible way to be human. So Joel Osteen was right, your best life now. Life to the full is what Jesus says. That's what he's come to do and what he's come to offer. So either John and Jesus are right and his life and his example is in fact the best possible way to be human or he's a liar. Like, those are your options, right? He's saying that what I've come to do is bring life and life to the full. The best possible way to be human, that's what I'm showing you and what I'm inviting you to. So either that's true or Jesus is lying and his life and his way of being in the world is actually not the best possible way to live. There's another alternative that might be better, more fruitful, more life-giving. So if what Jesus says is true, then a church, a community of people gathered around this Jesus who says, I've come to bring life and life to the full to show you the best possible life you can live, should be a group of people learning to live the best kinds of life, right? They should be people filled with the most joy, the most generosity, the most courage, the most nobility, all the things that we aspire to as humans, what's like hardwired in us. We should be growing in our capacity for those things. 
because we follow Jesus and he came to show us and give us life to the full, the best possible way of being human in the world. So if you run into, um, well, well, question, like when you run into Christians in the world, has that been your experience? Where you see Christians, you're like, those people know how to live. Like, they throw the best parties, they have the most joy, they're the most generous, they live the most compelling lives of anybody I've ever met, right? Those are all the Christians you know, right? Yeah, so that's a little cognitive dissonance, right? Jesus says, I've come to give life and life to the full, the best kind of human life, and then you run into people who say, I follow this Jesus, but they are not the most generous, charitable, loving, kind people you've ever met. So... Either Jesus is a liar, or maybe, you know, the Jesus community that they're connected to has got some wires crossed on what's really important or what is uh, uh, to be focused on, you know. Um, it should, in theory, produce the most compelling, inspiring, beautiful lives, the church. But sometimes it creates the most harsh or judgmental or arrogant lives, right? Um, lives that, or people that don't really care much about this life at all, in fact, but rather some life somewhere else, someday, at another time, to which I would argue is a complete missing of the mark. Jesus says, I've come to bring life and life to the full, the best possible way of being human. So we're going to start a new series. Over the next four weeks, we're going to talk about mastering the art of living. If we're a community of people who follow this Jesus, who claims that the best possible life is his life, this example of his life, then what would it look like for us to be mastering the art of living? So that our lives are an exercise of learning how to live the best human life possible. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, prosperity gospel or, so, you know, do this and then that. But, like, if we take Jesus seriously, then the lives that we sh we're living, should they're supposedly connected to the guy who says, this is how it's done, people. Follow me. I will lead you home. Well, if a church should be a group of people mastering the art of living, then what would need to be present in order for that to happen? That's the series. That's what we're going to do. So over the next four weeks, we're going to look at, in my, in my opinion, the things that would be needed, or at least a couple, if we're going to shoot for that, if that's our aim. One of them is clarity around the mission, clarity around why we're even here, what the point of this thing is. And then over the next three weeks after that, what are some rhythms then that we could engage as a community that would shape us and form us to that end? So that's what we're going to do over the next four weeks. This morning, I want to talk about why are we here. Like, you came to church this morning. You're in a building, which looks like a church, and this is what church people often do together when they meet. So, like, why are you here? Like, what's the purpose? What's the point? What's the mission? You know, you think about the organization you work for if you work outside of the home. You know, we exist to produce the best possible sound and lights in, you know, systems in businesses. Or we exist to sell the, you know, the best experience in buying a new home or whatever it is, right? Your organization that you're a part of has a mission, a statement that says, we're about this thing. Well, what is that for the church? So here's an all-play question. If someone were to ask you at your place of work or, you know, at Moochie's, which is the donut shop, um, what's the purpose of the church? Big C, capital C, big church, not awaken, but like the church in general, what's the purpose? The why does it exist? What would you say? All play, by the way, you can answer. This is not a joke. It's not a trick question. So shout out. Love God, love each other. What else? Spread the gospel. The good news. To know God. Transcept people. Anyone? Do good work. What's the purpose of the church? Serve. We're on a roll. Keep going. Don't stop now. Getting hot. 
to bring the kingdom here, right? Jesus says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Bring that here, that idea. What else? To heal. Yeah. That'd be great. Share. Okay. Support. Love it. So the purpose of the church, right? Lots of different things that people talk about. Christians, non-Christians alike. What is the purpose of the church? Specifically for our time this morning, I want to anchor this next 20 minutes in a word that we have used specifically and particularly. Like, there's a reason why, and it's if you go to our website, you will see this on the front page. Partnering with God in the renewal of all things. When we first started talking about planting other Awakens, uh, the other folks who were going to go to Awaken East, they kind of they had a hard time with partner. Like, ah, we don't really, I don't really get that, and uh, I'd choose a different word. And I don't usually, like, put my foot down, you know? I usually say, like, hey, you know, figure it out. Use the language. And I was like, no. You will use partner. I am your father. <laughs> I planted this church. You'll use that word. It wasn't like that, but it was like, no. If you're going to plant Awaken, you're going to use this word. Because it is essential. It is connected to who we are and how we understand the good news of God in the world. So why partner? Why partnership? Um, language matters. The words that we use to describe something, they mean things, right? When you use one word instead of another, you make a choice to say this but not that. For example, we talk about what happens here on Sunday morning as a gathering, not a service. So very rarely, only if I slip, you'll ever hear me talk about Sunday service. Because I am not providing a service for you. You are not members of a club that you pay for and then get services rendered. That is the antithesis of what the church is about. So we don't call it a service. We call it a gathering because what's happening here is God's people are gathered in this place, which means the church is gathered, not because we're in this building. So we use a particular word for certain reasons. When I talk about God, you will very uh, infrequently hear me use gendered specific language so i'll say the divine or god's self when i'm talking about god i don't i try not to say him why well i need a male and a female representative um i need two volunteers please if you would christy we have a female thank you very much uh and a male we need one male in the room thank you i appreciate that adam you're on my right here uh christy on my left this is adam he identifies as a male this is Chris, true. I talked I talk to them. This is Christy. She identifies as a female. Now, when God breathes life into humans and creates men or male masculinity, it, the scripture says that we are made in the image of God, which means that we bear the resemblance of, the marks of, we are uh, uh, sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Reflections of the divine essence and character and being. So, everything that's masculine in Adam is a, uh, it flows from the essence and the person, the being of God. Similarly, everything that is Christy and feminine and flows from the character and the being, the person of God. So God is not gendered him, but God is gender full. And when we speak about God with gendered language and we say him, 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 what are we saying to the women around us? Something I choose not to say and we choose not to say. Now, I'm not going to ask everybody to call God him and her. Like, that's a, you know, that's a pretty progressive idea. I think theologically it makes a lot of sense, quite frankly. But, so, I choose 
gender-neutral language instead of gender-specific language. Because what I want to say to my three daughters is that in them also is the image of God. That everything that they are reflects and bears the image of the divine. When I pray for babies, I say, God, I pray that in mom and dad, that they would feel and know and see everything that's true about you in masculine and feminine, right? We're saying something specific. Thank you. Give a round of applause for our volunteers. Appreciate that. So, words mean something. So, we say partner. Why? Let's get to it. The remainder of our time, I want to build a case for why we choose this word, and then I want to talk about the so what. Okay, so biblically, why partnership? If you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 2. I'll be honest, I shared this with the first hour. Um, I'm 41 now, and I really miss the day when everybody brought their Bibles to church, and someone said, turn in your Bibles to so-and-so, and it was like, I just miss that, you know, when people brought their Bibles to church. You probably have it on a screen, that's fine, I know, it's just nostalgia, I love the sound of it. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 says this, And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to care for it. One could argue that the man there is an inclusive man, which includes mankind or humankind. I would argue that's true. Therefore, God, in the, cr the crack of the bat, in the beginning of the scriptures, God comforts Noah, Noah's, the humans, into the garden to care and work to till and tend, according to the King James, the only real Bible. <laughs> till and tend, care and work, steward. So from the very beginning of the story, what we have is the divine being, God, inviting Adam and Eve, the first humans, to partner with God in the work of caring for and stewarding creation. Not only that, but God endows them with the unique capacity to create more life. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> when you make something, whether it's a human or not, you are participating in a divine act, which is why we say art matters. And when the church dismisses art and loses art or burns art and gets it out of the church, they're missing a part of who God is. Can I get an amen? So, if that's God, if that's true about God, and God gives us as humans the unique capacity to make, to create, to do something, to make something that wasn't here but is now, to bring something into existence, this is the invitation from the very beginning. God says to the first humans, care, steward, tend, till, work, create, partner with me in the ongoing work of creation. That's the beginning of the story. Fast forward to Genesis chapter 12, a couple of verses to the right. You have a story about Abram and Sarai, where it reads, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, your father's household, the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. All the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So what we have in Genesis 12 you start in Genesis 2, where God invites humanity to be stewards, co-creators in the work of creation, to be partners in this work that God invites us to. And then Genesis 12 is the response of the divine to a group of humans who have gone their own way, who have chosen to go a different direction. And God says, here's the plan. It's a 22 belly option on two. We're going to gather a group of people, and we're going to say, that the world, the whole world, will be blessed in and through this group of people. So Israel's whole job, the, 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 the 
tell us the end of Israel as an idea is that the entire world would be blessed, which is, once again, an invitation. It's a covenant agreement. When you, when you plant a church in the covenant, you actually sign a covenant agreement, and you say, like, I will do these things, and I won't do these things, and we'll be this kind of church, and so on and so forth. You agree to the ideas of the covenant, blah, blah, blah. You sign a covenant agreement, and that's between two parties. God makes a covenant with Israel, Abram and Sarai, and all of their offspring, which becomes Israel, and says, if you do this, I will do this. And so if you do this and I do this, guess what happens? Peace, shalom, flourishing, wholeness, and delight for the entire world. Partnership. It's another invitation to be partners with God in the ongoing work of creation. Fast forward to the book of Acts chapter 1. This is in the New Testament. It's quite a ways to the right. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Did you know that Acts is Luke chapter 2? Many argue that Luke wrote Acts. It's like its second volume. Anyways, uh, Acts chapter 1, verses 7 and 8 says, It is not for you, Jesus is speaking here, it's not for you to know the times or the dates. The Father is set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Here's how it works. Genesis chapter 2. God invites all of humanity to steward, care, tend, till, work in creation, to be partners. Then God invites Israel, this group of people, to be a specific kind of people in the world who are in partnership with God to bring the same thing. Flourishing, wholeness, delight, shalom. Jesus takes all that Israel was supposed to be in this covenant agreement upon himself to its completion, which is sacrificial love for the entire world, and then says God's people is now redefined in me and anyone following me and in me is invited to partner with God in the ongoing work of creation. Paul goes on in chapter 2, 5 of uh, 2 Corinthians and says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. The old is gone, the new is here. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So we now, therefore, Paul says, are ambassadors. We represent this idea, reconciliation, restoration, redemption in the world on behalf of God. Why do we choose partnership? Well, I would argue it's because it's the metaphor that the scriptures use all throughout when it talks about what the job of this people, God's people in the world, are doing and are about. We have been invited by God to partner in the renewal, the redemption, the restoration of all things. That's the mission. That's where this thing is headed. Now, what are the implications of that? By using this word partnership or by understanding what the church is doing in the world with this word partnership, what are some assumptions or what are some uh, so what's from that? I remember the first partnership I was ever a part of that I can remember. It was in fourth grade. My, my grade school best friend goes to this church, if you can believe that. Stories we could not tell you. Oh my gosh. Jeff Holmberg and I, it's fourth grade, and there are two young ladies that we have... Uh, we fancy, let's just say. Amy Tennyson and Katrina Freeling. If you're out there, ladies, you know who you are. Those are, those are real names. Amy Tennyson, Katrina Freeling. And, you know, we had the hots for these gals, and, you know, elementary school love, you could say. Fourth grade, I'm in one class, Jeff's in another, and I find out, I, I know, I see this happen, Amy Tennyson has bought the new Bobby Brown tape. You know what I'm talking about. Cassette tapes, Bobby Brown, how you doing? And I know of the do you remember totes? Totes, you'd put them under your desk. They had this little lid on them. You put all your stuff in there. Well, the Bobby Brown tape was in the tote, and I know the person who stole the Bobby Brown tape. 
That is gold, people. That information is gold. You see where this is headed. I won't, I won't say this person's name for the sake of anonymity. We'll just call him Bob. Bob steals the Bobby Brown tape, and I know who it is. And I'm like, Jeff, here's how this is going to work. I want to invite you into a business partnership. I'm at his house for a sleepover. We're up in his closet. I say, this, we're gonna call, this, is a new, this is a new agreement between you and me, buddy. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to somehow figure out how to get me to get the information to Amy that we know, I know, who took her tape. She'll like me forever. <laughs> That's the plan. We called our club the Siarea Club because our parents wouldn't let us say diarrhea. <laughs> Kids, that's for you. It was a brilliant partnership. It had a very clear mission. It needed multiple partners, multiple parties to pull it off. And it was a grand story, a caper, you know, motivated by love and Bobby Brown. Come on, people. The implications of a partnership. Three things, and I'll close with these. Number one, partnership is a constant reminder that you have been invited into something. When we choose to use the word partnership as we understand the role of the church and your job as a part of the church in the world, the implications are massive because if we say partnership, it means you've been invited. Do you remember when you were invited to your first birthday party in grade school? Like you came home with that invitation and it had like time, date, person, like who and your name was written on it, which means that your friend thought about you, that you were not forgotten, that you were included by name. To say we are in, we're, we're partners with God assumes you can't have a partnership without someone, one party at least, inviting another into an agreement into a mission, into a story. Partnership by nature necessitates invitation. And when you're invited, you're remembered, and you're included. One of my favorite verses in the Old Testament is Exodus, end of Exodus chapter 2. God heard the cry of his people. He saw them, and he remembered them and knew them. God remembered. Like, remembered these people. When you're thought of, when you're remembered, someone brings you to mind. That has huge implications. Like, what does it mean to say that God asks? It implies that somebody has a choice and that God stands vulnerably waiting for a response. Do you remember the snowball dance in junior high school? Do you remember this, right? You know, row of kids here, row of kids here, one insane kid who has the courage to walk across the gym and stand in front of whoever it is and say, will you dance with me? This is how I understand God. A junior hire, like all sweaty and vulnerable, standing in front of his church saying, I need a body. I don't want to do this alone. I'm choosing to invite you to dance with me. Like, can you hear the music, people? Can you hear it? It's love, it's mercy, it's justice, it's reconciliation, it's restoration, it's redemption. Who wants to dance, y'all? You've been invited to be a partner in something. It also means that partnership is about us and we, not I and me, which is good news for the world, amen? It's about us and we, not I and me. 
partnership states out loud that something fundamentally true about the human experience is it's better to be us and we than I and me. The, church, the earliest church mothers and fathers, when they were trying to figure out how to talk about God, this weird, bizarre, mysterious idea that God is both three and one exists as trinity. The word they came up with was perichoresis. Peri means dance or circle, and choresis is where we get the word choreography. Dance. So the earliest people trying to figure out what God was like when they were talking about the very essence, the ground of God's being, they said God is a circle dance. <laughs> I mean, how elementary and yet how profound and beautiful that in the very essence of God's being, what is, what is the ontological nature of God is relationship. Us and we, not I and me. And if that's who God is and that's where we are created from, then I would argue it's also what we're created for. Partnership is a confirmation of everything that's true about the human soul. We know this through science, we know it through psychology, that we are hardwired for relationship and us and we and community. And when we don't have it, we die. So to say the mission of the church is partnership is connected to the very essence and core of who we are as humans. It doesn't buy into the lie that I and me is better. And me and my needs are primary and first. It's the way of the cross. It's the way of sacrificial love. It's laying down my life for my neighbor and my enemy as well. Partnership says us and we, not I and me. The last thing I'll say is that to be a partner is to be caught up in a bigger story. It's to be caught up in a story that's bigger than yourself. Do you guys, do you watch movies? Have, has anyone seen um, We Bought a Zoo? I love that movie. I am such a sap, you guys. The other night it was on, and like me and two of my daughters and Laura are on the couch. We're watching this. I am a bucket of tears. Just a total mess. Like, how inspiring. What a story, right? This guy loses his wife to, to sickness and death. He's left with these two kids he doesn't know what to do with. And so he does what any sane person would do. He buys a zoo. Why? Because it's a huge, grand story. It includes Scarlett Johansson, yes, but it's a huge story. About saving Scar, the tiger, and the animals, and like all this stuff. And it's like, instead of being depressed and sad and isolated and alone, he says, I'm going to step into a bigger story, which is about something other than myself. And guess what happens? A grand adventure, a huge caper, a story worth telling happens. Why? Gang. It's what we were made for. It's what we're built for. To say we're partners with God is to be caught up in a story that is so far beyond and so much bigger than my life. I'd like to think I'm significant, I'm substantive, and I'd like to think you are as well. And yet, it's not enough. When we find people who get caught up in a story that's bigger than themselves, we're always inspired. Why? Because it's true. So somebody from our church, I'm standing right here last week, and he's like, Micah, I don't, sometimes I struggle to hear God, I, 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 I don't see God, and I always wondered why, and then I'm driving down Hiawatha every single day on my way to work from St. Paul to Golden Valley, and I pass this encampment of native people who are literally sleeping on the side of the road in tents, 
and it, and it dawned on me that I pass God every day, and I see God every day if I have eyes to see it. Elijah Neumann, some of you know him. So he's just like, I don't know what to do, but can we do something? And I'm like, you should talk to Jenna. <laughs> Jenna's in charge of missions and local you know, outreach and all that. Like, talk to Jenna. Let's figure out how to do this. If you're not a part of the, like, fireside, the Facebook fireside page, and you're a part of Awaken, you should get on there. Because, like, this last week, just a simple ask from Elijah. Hey, I just feel compelled to do this. Like, I, I, this story's bigger than me, and I'm, I'm stepping into it. C- help. Like, what do you have? And, like, the, the, the thing just lights up. It's like chirping with good news. Like, oh, I've got this, and I, I, can, I can buy that, and I'll bring that, and we've got coffee, and this and that. And then uh, how many cups of coffee? Ten, five, five gallons of coffee, like down to the deal on Saturday, just handed out, talking to people, doing life, like being human. This is just a great story, you guys. This is like somebody who's like caught up in something bigger. And now people in our community are like, that is, that's it, man. That's the stuff. So if you want to, if you're, if you're bored or you don't know what to do, and you want to be a part of something bigger than yourself, I'll just say, Elijah's right here. Wave Elijah. He's right there. He'll be in the back. If you want to help, if you want to get involved, that's one thing. And there are a legion number of things around here that one could say, refugees, kids, all kinds of things. My point is this. What is the story you are writing with your life? Like, you get one shot at this wild and precious thing we call life. Like, when you get to the end... Will it be a compelling story about a grand adventure and a caper that no one could have ever imagined that included love and redemption and mercy and justice and all the things that we long for? Or will people get to the end and say like, well, nice knowing you. What is the story you're writing with your life? And if you're bored, and if you don't know which way to go, or you don't know what, can I just give you one, one encouragement? Even if you don't buy the whole Jesus bit, get involved in a story that's bigger than you, that you can't do on your own, that actually serves somebody else instead of yourself, and tell me I'm crazy. The point of the church, the whole thing is set up, predicated on this idea of we've been invited to partner with God. And if we're going to master the art of living, clarity around why we exist as a church is paramount. It's like wisdom on this one. We exist because we've been invited by the divine to participate in a grand story about reconciliation and redemption and restoring and people living the most compelling lives inevitably come to the conclusion that they are not the center of the universe, but rather sacrificial love is the engine that drives the whole thing. These people often recognize they're a part of something bigger than themselves. It's about us and we, not I and me. This is the invitation of Jesus, to follow this person who says, I've come to show you what life looks like. And so if you want to know, follow me. So friends, that's the job. That's the whole point. That's the purpose, the mission of the church. And I don't know about you, but like, I'm all in on that. So if you're interested in participating and responding to an invitation from the divine, no big deal. It's just another Sunday. But I would invite you to join me. What say you, Awaken? Are you up for the task? Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash awakencommunity or on Twitter 
Play with the community. See you next time.